Revelation 8, verses 2 to 12. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it, upon, threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had their seven trumpets prepared to blow, prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. It's the word of God. So, after seal six, so you'll notice in Revelation there's this succession of sevens. Sevens. there's seven seals that are opened. There's seven trumpets that are blown. Then there's seven bowls that are poured out. Now, how are we to see these? Are we to read them that it's 21 events happening in succession and chronology? They're meant to be seen as following one another or not? This is the question we have to answer, and you can take your choice. I'll present very quickly in this intro the difference. If you see them successively, you have a little bit of explaining to do. But if you see them as a different perspective, which I'll show, you also have explaining. So for instance, the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl seems to say, seem to say the same thing, that everything is destroyed. The sixth seal, remember, is, is the recounting of the prophet Joel, that stars will fall in the mountain, everything comes undone. After the sixth seal comes silence, and the reason is nothing can happen after everything is gone, right? Sixth seal seems to end it all. And then you hear the seven trumpets. And the, se- the sixth trumpet, the same thing seems to happen. But how can there be a first trumpet if everything was destroyed in the sixth seal, you see? So if you're going to see it chronologically, you have to explain and, and, or be comfortable with that pinch of saying, I see them in order, but I don't know, I don't understand how it could be. In fact, any of these trumpets marks the end of human existence, right? Any of them as, a, as an astronomical sort of event. The other way that the majority of scholars I know see it, now you don't have to accept it, but this is the other view, is something called the recapitulation view. I'll I'll make that normal. Imagine you're at a football game, and there's a touchdown. Um, And I'm I'm Portuguese, so football's soccer for me, so I'm straining here to explain football as American football. But imagine there's a touchdown, and you're sitting on the 50-yard line watching it. You see one perspective of it. But what if you then look up at the screen and you see the, the angle from the blimp? and you watch the same touchdown happen, but from a blimp's angle. And then you watch another angle from the end zone. So what you're seeing is the exact same event happening, but because they're coming at you from different perspectives, you're seeing different things each time it's presented. 
you can see, oh, I didn't realize the tackle made that block. I didn't realize the receiver did this or whatever. And this is the view that many people have of the sevens because they seem to be saying a very similar thing. They follow a similar pattern. And although it's not a perfect view because there's always gaps, that is the view I think makes the most sense of what we're seeing. And if that is the case, then what you're seeing is judgment portrayed to you in three different ways over 21 different events. And that means from different perspectives, just like you'll see different parts of the play every time you see a different camera angle, you're going to learn something new about judgment at every turn. Some people say the first seals are seen from the perspective of the church, and that these, this, the trumpets are the perspective of the, of the world, how the world will see things. And the last one is the perspective from heaven. Maybe, I don't know, let's read it. Uh, let's figure that out. But if we do assume that these are, re are happening over again, which I do think, I think it makes the most sense of what we're seeing, then what we're going to learn is something new every week about judgment. Last week we saw, I mean two weeks ago, the seals are a lot about sovereignty. God saying, I am Lord, you are not. Which is hard to swallow, but that's what comes clear. In this one, we're seeing something a little different, but it's the same thing. That judgment is, a, is, from, is, um, is God's response to, a, to something, a warning, and a liberation. Okay, So that's what we're going to see here. That it's a response, a warning, and a liberation. So, it's a response. Right away, this opening scene, before he even gets to the trumpets, John talks about this angel who is burning incense on the altar. And what we're seeing is a heavenly reimagining uh, re or a heavenly ritual that is actually a mimic of what happens on earth. Because the temple, in the tabernacle, there was this incense offering. And what we're seeing is it happening in heaven for some reason. So when we look at that sense, if you understand the incense offering in the Old Testament and in the temple, you begin to see how this is a response and what God is doing and why this is happening before the trumpets. So let's go through that incense ritual first. First, incense was offered in two different ways. First, every day, twice a day, incense was burned. So the, in, in fact, in Luke 1, Zechariah, if, you, if you're a Christian, you know the Bible well, you remember Zechariah, but when Jesus is, uh, John the Baptist is announced, it says Zechariah is serving as a priest that week, that month, and he goes in and he's offering the incense offering. So twice a day at dawn and dusk, they would go in, they would, fill, they would get some incense, they'd put fire on the altar from the, from the burnt offering altar, they'd pull some of the coals off, put it there, and pour incense on it, smoke. So they'd do that twice a day, every day, all the time. And then it was also offered on the Day of Atonement, and those are both significant. Now, the reason, the symbolism of the, of the incense was incredible, and I can't go through all of it. One, it was offered all the time to show that the prayers of the people should always be happening because the incense was understood to be the prayers of God, prayers of the people, sorry, symbolically rising up to God. Um, and there's much more, but that's part of it. But did you notice that the incense, it wasn't just anything being burned, it was sweet-smelling things. And the imagery there is to say, first, your prayers go up to God when they're, they're presented to God, but that he loves them, he savors them. He finds them sweet when you pray. And this is why in Exodus 30, verse 10, he says, this altar is holy, most holy to the Lord, because he, he relishes the prayers of his people. So it's an important thing that's going on there. But there's something even more, I think, profound happening. Why are the prayers even acceptable to God? Like, why does God even listen to the prayers? 
Because if they're all sinners, like, what's the point? How does he do it? Because that, that's, that's in the symbolism. So if you want to send a letter to me, for instance, not that I'm putting myself in the position of God, but if you want to say something to me, there's a ritual you must follow, right? We all have rituals. If you remember my, probably not, Christmas sermons on this. Uh, I mentioned rituals. Rituals dominate our life. We just don't know it. If you want to send me a letter, you have to go through this ritual. Get a piece of paper. Write down your thoughts. Fold it a certain way. Put it in an envelope. Put a, go out and purchase a stamp. Put it on it. Address it. Go to a box and drop it in and hope somebody brings it to me. That is a ritual by which your voice gets heard by me. Or an email, same thing. Is that ritual is a process by which I get your messages. In biblical sim- symbolism and imagery in the temple, listen, God didn't need these symbols for himself. He could just hear your voice, which, he's, which you're going to see in a minute. Instead, he puts in these rituals. And the ritual is not accidental. So everything you're seeing in this depiction in Revelation 8 and in the temple is highly important for you. You, you and I need to know this, not him. So what he's saying is this, first of all. Every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, there would be the, the goat would be killed on the birth offering altar, which is outside the Holy of Holies. Then the blood would be taken and it would be put on the temple, or the, sorry, the altar of incense, because it had to cl- it cleanse the altar. And therefore, by the blood of the lamb, the prayers were made acceptable to God. See? See the Christian imagery already coming. Then, it's not by accident that Revelation says he took fire from the altar. Because I mentioned earlier, all the incense had to be lit by fire from the burnt offering, from you know, the charred coals of the body of the animal and the wood. Why? It's incredible. This is why. Because the burnt offering altar is the place of judgment and mercy. It is the place where God judges sin and destroys it. He shows he takes it seriously. It must be crushed because it will never submit. So he burns it up. But it's also the place where he accepts your offering in your place. So it's all at once the seat of judgment and mercy, just as the cross is the seat of judgment and mercy. So when you take the fire that symbolizes judgment and mercy, and then you put the prayers of the people on it, they are acceptable because God has atoned, he's accepted atonement for you, so that then your prayers are rooted and ignited by mercy. That's the point. And that's why they're acceptable every time he offers them. It's an incredible image. And so the prayers, that's you and I, find our sin has been atoned for by an act of mercy. And so they're acceptable. Now, why then does this angel do this ritual? He offers the prayers up to God, then he fills up the censer with more fire and dumps it on the earth. What's the symbolism here? It's, very, it's actually, you've probably already figured it out. We've touched on it already. Judgment is a response of God to your prayer for justice. Every cry a Christian has ever let out for, why me? Why? Why am I suffering? I spent time in the hospital visiting one of our dear people yesterday, and I'll tell you, that guy is not crying, why me? I would be if I was him. He is not. I've never seen a couple go through hardship like this. Such faith. But every prayer that comes out of the mouths of Christians is a call for God to bring justice to the earth. Now, God luckily answers your prayers the right way. He says, I'm going to answer your prayer and give you exactly what you would have prayed for if you knew what to pray for. I know you want your enemy crushed, but I'm going to answer it right. I'm going to, I'm going to accomplish satisfying your, your, the injustice you've experienced my way. And he does this for us continually. There's this 
sense in which Revelation is telling us very clearly something that is a profound mystery. God predestines all things, he says it in Ephesians. However, he has made himself willing to be moved by the prayers of people. And so history is shaped by the decree of God and the prayers of his people. How? I don't know. I don't know. How, does, uh, how do you do both? How do you set out the timeline and account for the prayers of your own people? I'm not sure. There's a mystery there. But I do know that's what's presented to us here. And is it any wonder then that prayer is such a central place in the church and has been forever and in scripture because it's incredibly powerful? There's this guy, um, that not there is, there was this guy named George Herbert. Some of you may have heard of him, a Christian um, uh, poet many moons ago. He wrote this wonderful poem. I'm not going to go through it because it's, long, it's, well, 14 lines, but it's, we're not here for literary talk entirely. And in it, he tries to describe prayer. What is prayer? And you think at the start, he's going to come up with something nice. You know, he's going to come up with a one-liner that we can put in our pocket. And it's like, what is prayer? This is what it is. No. Every line for 14 lines offers a different perspective of what prayer is. And by the end, he's basically saying, I don't know what it is, but it's this. It's all of this together. So I won't go through all of them, but there's three things he says that are particularly powerful, I think. The first thing is he says, prayer is reversed thunder. And, what he, and he's a poet, so he doesn't explain himself, but here's what he means. When God commands down and says, thus says the Lord, he is thundering to us, commanding to us. Prayer then is our reversing and thundering back up to God, and because he answers those prayers... Our prayers are like thunder because he hears them and heeds them and acts on them. And so prayer is the reverse thunder, says George Herbert. Second thing, well, it's not second. This is not in any particular order. But he says also that prayer is like six-day creation. It's like, what? Here's, this is why I love artists. They think differently. Here's what he's saying. When we pray, we don't know how it works, but God hears the prayers and something new happens. Like he makes something happen. He creates he takes our groaning. Sometimes it's like Israel's before Pharaoh. They don't, you'll see in a minute, they cry out, but they don't cry out for anything specific, necessarily. And they cry out, we groan, and God takes that groan and he makes something, a path, a future, a life, a job, a, job, a moving to New Brunswick, whatever it is. I hope there wasn't any groaning, though. But anyway, <laughs> but you see, John, John, uh, George Herbert's right. Prayer is creative. It's a creative act because God creates something from them. And he closes the poem with this line, and he says, it is the land of spices. And you're like, what? Well, it might help to know he was born in 1593, died in 1633 as only a 40-year-old. And um, he looks older than 40 right there, though, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> the artist needs work. Um, but what he means is, this is the time of discovery, remember? New well, not new. We, we thought we were discovering things, but people had already been there, so I don't know how we discovered them. But we're, they've got... He's, and especially in the East, right? China, India, Japan. And they were known as the land of spices. And it was a mysterious place. A mysterious place full of wonder and secrecy, but also beautiful, savory. It enhanced everything for our food. Imagine if we didn't have the things, potatoes, sweet potatoes, pumpkins. I mean, a number of things. I'm talking about what we got here. Corn. Was corn? Who said Pasta. Oh, pasta. I wish we hadn't had pasta. I'd be half the man I am. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but you see, when he says prayer is like the land of spices, he's saying it's mysterious, it's beautiful, it's aromatic, it's all these things. 
And this is why we need poets, because they help us see these things. I encourage you to read that prayer. Um, you may not agree with all of it. That's okay. You don't have to agree with all of it, but it's wonderful. So the first point is simple. Judgment is a response to the cry of the church. We can't ignore it. All through Revelation, he's saying, I'm doing this in response to your prayers. So that's the first thing. Second, it's a warning. So there's things we can't know. And I know it's difficult, especially for guys like me who are very nice and reformed in their theology. We want to have answers for everything. But the imagery here, we can't understand. And if we waste our time, and I do think it is a waste sometimes, trying to decide what exactly is meant by this burning mountain that is hurled into the sea, we end up focusing so much on is it a meteor or a volcano that we miss the point. So rather than focus as, as Christians on what we are not sure about, how about we look for what we know in the passage, and let's look at that and see if that's a hint. Because there's something we know in these trumpets, these first four, that we are positive. Every scholar, everybody who reads it must come away thinking it, you probably already have, is you cannot deny it is asking us to think about the plagues on Egypt. You may have noticed, hail, darkness, contaminated water, and so on. There's this intentionality that the vision that John gets is saying, think about the plagues here. So I don't know if this burning mountain, what it is. I don't know what these things are. Neither do you, neither does anybody. But I do know we're being told to look at the Exodus. So let's look at that for a second and see if it'll help us understand what these trumpets are about. So, I don't even know where I am. Here we are. Okay, plague. First, let's start with Pharaoh. When Pharaoh shows up in Egypt, there is an interesting fact. Have you noticed he is not named? Everywhere in the Old Testament, they're pretty good, detailed. They've got all these names, Shalmaneser, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, all these names. But they don't name Pharaoh, even though we, pretty, we have a pretty good idea it's one of three guys, depending on the, on the era. But he doesn't name them. Why? Well, it's because Pharaoh is a stand-in for all the raw, absolute worldly power that every king makes himself. Every king eventually sets him up himself up against God. This is the biblical claim. And in fact, every human heart does that. So Pharaoh is every Pharaoh. He's every king. He's a stand-in. But his power in the story of Exodus and late parts of Genesis is predominantly in his power, uh, in, in his, his food monopoly. Right? This is, there's a famine. Remember, the famine sweeps the land of Egypt, and he is primely positioned, and I'm going to poke bears here a little, because some people think of Joseph as only a great guy. I'm going I'm to ask you to question it just a little. There's a famine in the land. Pharaoh has food, people don't. Pharaoh also has a really smart advisor. And although Joseph helps save the people, he noticed to get their, free, to get their life, what do they give up? Freedom. Joseph says, I'll give you food, but give me your money. Don't just give me your money. When that's gone, give me your cattle. When that's gone, give me your land. And when that's gone, give me you. You're a slave. So I'm not suggesting Joseph is an intentional slave trader. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, you see how complicated things are. That in order to live, they have to give up something. In fact, they have to give up everything. And so Pharaoh becomes, like it or not, a slave master here. And he's dominating everybody in the land in this way. He's got this monopoly. They exchange everything. And here's the great, here's the great irony. Not only do they avert famine by giving up their freedom, but here's this irony. I never, whenever, no one ever mentions in Bible studies. People have given up their freedom because there's no food in the land, and the first job the slaves are given is to build granaries to hold the surplus food. See? You never ask these questions. 
But here we have at the center of it, Pharaoh. We're meant, we are intentionally meant to see him as, I don't want to say the antichrist, but as the anti-God, surely. That's the point. And so, much more will be said. But then he comes on the scene. Israel cries out, he shows up. And the moment God shows up, the power begins to shift. The Pharaoh's power begins to recede as God asserts his power. Um, and then, so, okay, with why, does he do, why are, the, why are the, the plagues? I won't go through all the ten of them. But you know what the plagues more or less are. Here's an interesting fact. If God's intent was to crush Pharaoh, why didn't he do it in the first plague? Why did he wait for ten? You ever wonder that? He could have. It wasn't a power issue. It was a will issue. He didn't want to. But why? Why didn't he want to crush him? And the answer comes, it's all through Exodus. In fact, it's, I think, six or seven times. He says so that you will know that I am the Lord. You notice that? He continually says, I'm doing this so that you will know. In other words, I am going to bring judgment on Egypt, and Israel's going to be experiencing some, and they're going to see some, and the entire intent of this is to convert you by revealing myself. I'm going to, I want to convert. I want you, Pharaoh, to know that I am the Lord, not you, and I'm going to show you time and again. I'm a patient God. I will do this time and again. It'll hurt as it always hurts to admit you're not king. But the point is not entirely to destroy. It's to tr convert by revealing who I am. Making sense? Now, if we now turn to these trumpets, why is it that these trumpets say that only a third of the land is destroyed? The wrong view would be to say, let's get our books out and determine how much water is in the world, and once a third of it is polluted, the end has come. That's what people do today. No, stop it. The point is, not all of it is being destroyed. That's what you need to know. Why doesn't God bring the sixth, sixth trumpet at the first one? Why does he bring the, the first five seals, the first five trumpets, the first five bowls? Why doesn't he kill everybody immediately if he's got a problem with them? Because, in part, he is trying to rouse a sleeping world. Because there are people who he's trying to draw to himself, and he's making clear, if you don't accept it, understand I cannot be blamed for being unjust. I've given you every opportunity to do this. And so he's actually showing incredible patience. And here I quote again, I think the third time in this series, Daryl Johnson, wonderful scholar and pastor, who says, what is being revealed to us is that God warns the world through acts of judgment worked out on the stage of history. Harsh realities of history sound the alarm that you are not going down, or sorry, you are going down the wrong road and you had better turn around. So the trumpets... Judgment of God comes first as a response to the church, second as a warning to those who are not the church. The last thing is it comes as liberation. So here we have the plagues again. If the plagues are warning the Egyptians, what are they doing for Israel? Right? Let's focus on that. So chapter 2 of Exodus, fascinating verse. Chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry, was, sorry, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Notice something. They don't cry out to God. They cry out for help. Okay? Israel is not faithful. It's very clear. We have to be clear about this. Israel is not a faithful nation. They are crying out in their agony for rescue, like many of us do. Right? It's intentional and strategic that the author is clear. They don't cry out to God. They cry out for help. In fact, Keep going into the book of Judges, and you're going to realize that's all they ever do. It's all we ever do. We cry out, and we just want relief from our trouble. We don't want God all the time. Certainly Israel doesn't. Now, why is that relevant? Here is why. 
They cry out for something, not someone. And then God shows up, and God must liberate them. And how does he liberate Israel from Egypt? He does two things. One we often talk about, one we don't. First one is political release. It's he, in order to free a sla- enslaved people, you must crush the mechanisms of oppression. You must. Is it military? Is it economic? Is it social? Whatever it is. It, probably all of the above, oftentimes. If that's the case, God comes in and he says, I am Yahweh, you are not. I'm going to assert my power and I'm going to drag Israel out because they're my people and I'm going to crush you if I have to because liberation is necessary. And slave owners don't often give up the slaves. Right? This is just the fact of history. So on one side, he's freeing them politically, but he's freeing them spiritually. Because back in Genesis 47, when Joseph is working and trying to feed people and they're surrendering everything to, to Pharaoh in the process, they give up themselves entirely. And they give up themselves to Pharaoh, meaning, I trust you, Pharaoh, to save my life, and I'll give you everything to do it. And this practical concession becomes a spiritual one over time. And you see it in the wandering when they yearn to go back to Egypt. Remember, where are the leeks and onions? I wish I was back. I wish I was back. And so God has to not only break the political problem, but he has to break the spiritual problem. So he shows up and he says, I am who I am. Remember, Moses says, who should I tell these people you, you are? He says, tell them I am Yahweh. I am that I am. I am who I am. Cryptic, right? What does that mean? But then he first says, here's the cryptic answer, I am Yahweh, and here's what it means. And he then, for the rest of the Bible, literally, he fills in the character. He says, here, if you have this wall, put this little tag on it that describes who I am because I'm going to show you who I am because what I do is who I am and who I am is what I do. And so the very, only a few verses later, it's fascinating. He says in, Genesis, in Exodus 3, 7, and 8, then the Lord said, look at this. Remember, Israel has not called him. So what he's doing is he's revealing himself to them. You have not called me, but here's who I am to you. Even though you don't want me, you just want relief. I am the one who I have surely seen. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them, to bring them out of the land into a good and broad land. He is saying what it means to be Yahweh. People are always wondering, what does Yahweh even mean? I am that I am. It means watch me. If you want to know me, you must relate to me. You're not going to know me through books. You will know by relating to me, trusting me, and as I save you, you'll know who I am. And who is he? He's the God who hears the people who cry out not even for him. He's the one who listens. He's the one who comes down. He seems to be a magnet for misery and suffering. God can't seem to enter in or hear his people suffering without entering in. And I know I may have said it to you before, but in John 11, when Lazarus is dead, and Mary and Martha ask questions, he gives Martha a lecture, right? I am the resurrection of the life because Martha's, you know, a good practical theological woman, maybe. Mary, however, is weeping. And what does he do? He weeps. And he's at the tomb of Lazarus, and he weeps, knowing that in 12 seconds he's going to raise him. Why is he weeping, even though he knows there's no reason to weep? Because he can't see you suffer without suffering. This is a parent. This is what parents do. If, you're, if you have children, you know this. In fact, that may even be why the talk about election a few days ago angers you. Because you see your children sometimes that are far away. I know many of us are in this position. And you weep because you don't feel like you can do anything about it. Can I trust God with them? Can I trust them? And it's hard. It's hard. But this is exactly what he has come to do. He's saying, know me. Know that you can trust who I am. And, as a res- but, and he's also saying, don't just trust me, but don't trust the Egypts out there. The Egypts that, that offer you freedom, 
uh, or they, 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 uh, well, they offer you slavery, but they package it like freedom, right? And so God comes not just to, to pull them out politically, but he must break them uh, of their sin because if you go to a gambler and you think you're going to help them by just paying off their debts, you're wrong. You have to cure the gambling problem. And God says, I can't just pull you out of Egypt because then you're just going to fall back. You'll find another Egypt. So what I must do is break that sin in you that desire to be away from me, the desire to find satisfaction in something other than me. And the way he does it is through relationship. I disclose myself. Have you ever noticed? Uh, here's a romantic bit for you. If you're ever, in those early days when you're falling in love, there's always one of the two couple who uh, says, I love you first, right? And that's awkward. And you feel like, oh, do I say it? Am I going to... And the reason you struggle is because it's vulnerable to show your cards first. Because what if they don't love you? And yet, all through Scripture, all you hear is God saying, I have shown my love to you, knowing I took all the burden, all the risk, because you could throw it in my face. You don't have to accept it. And he's borne it all. So he says, trust me, because I'm trustworthy. Trust me in all these things. The cross has freed us from slavery to sin, and the judgment you're seeing in Revelation frees you from the effects of sin. See, you're no longer a slave to sin. You still fall back because you're addicted. We still fall into sin. But we still suffer, no matter how wonderful you are, you still suffer the effects of sin, right? You still suffer the effects of slavery, of robbery, of crime, of any number of things. But judgment must come to end the effects of sin. If it doesn't, we do not have a sovereign God, we don't have a just God, we don't have a loving God. So, so, so that's justice comes, but it, must, it frees us. Judgment frees us from all of those things. Now, I'll close here. I can understand it sounds too harsh. People will say, it's a little harsh though, right? Revelation's pretty hard. In fact, many saints have said this over the years. But sin will not be tamed. It can't be. It's only crushed. And the danger, of course, is I remember me being a skeptic when I first became a Christian. The question is, if I become a Christian, I lose something. I thought, it was, I, thought I lost something of significance, which now I know I didn't, but I thought I did because I would lose face because I had mocked the church for a long time. So it's a hypocrisy. Have to, in, in, to, to swallow. And if I live in this nice way the church is, the, that Christianity is telling me to, man, I'm going to be taken advantage of in the world. That's what I thought. So there's a sacrifice. And let me use this, I'll close with this example. So C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which again, I've said before, don't ever look to it for your theology of heaven and hell. It's terrible, but it's not meant to be. C.S. Lewis says himself, this isn't, that's not what it's for. But in it, he is taking a tour, kind of like Dante and Dante's Inferno, of heaven and hell. And as he's doing, he's got a teacher who's guided there with him. And at one point, they stumble upon this scene. And it's a guy, scrawny guy, and he's got a red lizard on his shoulder. And this red lizard just won't shut up, right? Just talking. And he's always, it's kind of like, the, you know, those, you have the angel and the devil on your shoulder in those shows? Well, this, this, this little red lizard is just nagging him and dragging him down, just constantly talking. And he's like, shut up, shut up, leave me alone. Like he's yelling at this, this lizard. And he comes face to face with an angel, and the angel says, do you want me to kill that lizard? And he's like, well, I don't know, I don't know. And they hum and haw for a while, and he finally does it. But when he does it, he rips the, this lizard off, he cracks its back, throws it to the ground, and both man and lizard end up on the floor dead. But then, before the eyes of Lewis, he says, as he's watching, the lizard turns into this majestic, giant horse, and the man turns into this rippling Adonis, you know, muscles, tall, beautiful thing. And, they both, and he rides off on the horse into the sunset. And it's like, what? Well, this is what? Because this is the, the dialogue that comes next. And he's Scottish, the teacher. I won't do the accent. 
Do ye understand all this, my son? said the teacher. I don't know about all, sir, said I. Am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into, a, into the horse? Aye, but it was first killed. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try, I'll try not to, sir. But does it mean that everything, every, sorry, everything, everything that is in us can go to the mountains, to heaven? Nothing. Not even the best and noblest can go as it, on as it is now. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. And the idea is, it looks like a big sacrifice. It looks like it's harsh. It looks difficult. But if you're a Christian, understand, liberation must come with the destruction of evil. Has to. There's no, there's no way around it. And if you're a skeptic, my response would be, give in. Give in now, because it, the, way, the benefits far outweigh Far away what you lose. You'll lose reputation. Listen, you're going to lose it for a bad tweet anyway. All these things we hang on to. And God says, if you give it up, I will transform it. I'll take that sin in you and I'll break it. And it'll be reborn, not the sin, but the healthy thing it was seeking will be reborn into something that is so incredible you won't even, ignore, you won't even believe it. So he's worth doing it. So Revelation has all these dark scenes, but they're a response, a warning, and a freedom. He demands everything from us. He will not allow you to keep one souvenir of hell. None. That's the God we serve. Thank goodness he won't. But, but he'll take all that we surrender to him and give us much more than we could ever imagine. That's the gospel. Let's pray.